All right, First Timothy 4 and uh, verses 7 and 8. I'll try to hit you quick tonight, this afternoon. First Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I want to speak about, well, those things that are on your mind with the new year, especially if you're a New Year's resolution type. I want to talk about bodily exercise and godliness. Because whenever we start thinking about New Year's resolutions, exercise, like who's going to make New Year's resolutions and not say, I'm going to exercise, right? Because what else do you, what else do you make a New Year's resolution for? I'm going to go to Tahiti. That's a good New Year's resolution. I like that one right there. I'm going to Tahiti. Oh, you're going to go to Ukraine. All right. First Timothy four, verses seven and eight. <clears throat> but refuse profane and old wives fables and exercise the, thyself rather unto godliness for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us good perspective on the things related to our life. And I pray that you'd help us to understand what you're saying and what you want from us more than anything else. And that we would strive for those things, that we would covet earnestly the best gifts. And Lord, I pray that you would build us and strengthen us as a people, give us greater confidence in you and teach us to be loyal and faithful to you and correct us when we aren't. And I pray that you do these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Christianity has a long history of attempting to achieve piety through self-discipline. This is not a new thing. It's old thing, but it goes on and on. We do this uh, habitually. In some cases, uh, extreme self-discipline that people believe will make them truly godly. This tradition is not, of course, limited to Christianity. The Spartans, probably the best known culture uh, who tried to attempt uh, a greater, they wanted to achieve uh, a greater high le- higher level of devotion to the gods through asceticism, extreme self-denial, renouncing all pleasures. They're famous for it. We call it after that. You're going to live a Spartan lifestyle. We know what that means all these years later. And it translates into the modern day food Nazis, exercise gurus who aim for uh, life on a higher plane through self-denial and self-discipline. You're going to you're going to, you know, complete your bucket list uh, if you if you do these things. But Christians quite often have tried to get in the game, get a share in it and. And Christians have the ability to apply a little extra leverage to a little juice to the argument now because, you know, if they can attach it to your godliness and tell you that you are more godly because fill in the blank or just leave the blank there, um, you're going to be more godly if you do this right here, whatever it is I'm promoting here at this time, then uh, then that's. Very enticing to people. We all want to be 
you know, on that higher plane. Everyone wants to be there on the higher plane or at least give ourselves a smug sense of uh, self-sufficiency in these areas here. So we could trace it through the monks of the Middle Ages, the food police of today, the push for austerity, abstaining from all sugars, living on vitamin supplements and garlic tablets for the rest of your life. And we make it into a religious duty then because, you know, your body's a temple. That's what they say. Your body's a temple. My body might be a temple. It might be like one of those temples they discover down in ancient Mayan ruins. Um, but uh, nonetheless, this is something that we... It's a stumbling block to many. The Apostle Paul dealt with it directly in the book of Colossians when he said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ, he said. He said, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. Which all, I'm sorry, after the commandments and doctrines of men, I, I did skip that, which all are to perish with the, the using. That's an interesting take on asceticism and um, rigorous self-denial. And I... Please don't misunderstand me if you need to be on a special diet. I'm not preaching against that. If you want to be healthy and you're driven to that, and, and we should all want to be, we should at, at least understand that everything we've been given, we have stewardship over. And so maintaining my body, exercising, putting, you know, putting the fork down, which is often more discipline than picking it up, um, doing pushbacks on the table, pushback. Um, those kinds of things uh, are part of good stewardship. Okay, but if you think that bench pressing a certain weight is going to make you godly, it's not. I'm going to talk about that. <clears throat> And so that's what Paul was after there, and he's dealing with the same thing to a certain extent here in 1 Timothy, though that is not the entire focus of what Paul is saying. Some have speculated that Timothy himself was very strict about self-discipline, and that this is why Paul urged him in 1 Timothy 5, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. The suggestion has been made that Timothy kept his diet to an extreme minimum, only drank water, etc., <clears throat> thinking that that would make him healthier. And, and as a result, Paul is saying, look, you're, you're tearing your body apart by this. And of course, understanding that the sanitary water that we have today would not necessarily have been available to Timothy in that time. If Timothy suffered from poor health, that could explain why he was a little more rigorous about his diet. Whether Paul thought of Timothy's dietary restrictions 
as contributing to an overall problem or not, I can't say. Now, for sure, the, the Bible doesn't elaborate on it with that. But in this passage, he certainly is dealing with uh, an overemphasis on rigorous self-discipline. And it is possible to be too rigorous when it comes to self-discipline. If you think that, and, and we all need, you know, Paul talked about um, keeping under his body and bringing it into subjection, buffeting his body, dying daily, etc. There is a need for self-discipline. And certainly as a Christian who doesn't have the ability to tell himself no, or as I say often, it's harder to tell yourself yes than it is to tell yourself no, as in, Yes, you will go running today. Yes, you will work out today. Yes, you will get up out of bed right now because the alarm is going off. Yes, you will. Um, sometimes it's more difficult than no, you won't. So there's a need and a spiritual need for discipline and self-discipline. But what I'm talking about here is the kind of rigor that Christians sometimes apply to it where it, 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 it defines them spiritually. <clears throat> Notice that Paul considers it to be a departing from the faith, a heeding of seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 4 and notice, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now this is in context with what Paul is saying right here. So it is possible, it is possible that we will love and believe a lie about ourselves and about our bodies. That, and and this, is, this is not, again, a new thing. The idea that I can create the perfect man in myself. There have been many who have been snared in that idea. <clears throat> when we speak of those whose conscience is seared with a hot iron, I think we have, of course, other sins in mind here, but Paul charges that those who have made a religion out of self-discipline are speaking lies in hypocrisy. It's fake, in other words, it's fake religion. It's fake spirituality. In verse 3, he points out some of their specific practices, forbidding to marry. Again, that extreme asceticism, I'm going to deny myself of all pleasures and luxuries in this life. And commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. In the sixth verse, Paul urges Timothy to put the brethren in remembrance of these things. That is, to put them in remembrance of the things in verses 4 and 5. Specifically, that God gave us food to enjoy, that we should receive it with gratitude. This is what he says, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> I find it interesting in verse 6 that Paul uses the word nourished. 
that when we receive food as a gift from God with gratitude, then we'll, we, we will be nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. This is what he says. This is the, the result. So in other words, saying to yourself, okay, you know, I know that God gave us all this, but I'm going to live on bread and water. And that's going to make me more spiritual. I'm not going to eat red meat. I'm not going to eat pork. I'm not going to have sugar, especially not refined sugar. None of that. I'm only going to eat, you know, natural things. And that's going to make me godlier. And the result is, and we have seen this over years in ministry, I've seen this, that it actually has the opposite effect with many people. That they become self-absorbed and self-centered. And they believe that they are being more spiritual when in fact their piety is pseudo-piety. It is their they become pious prigs. We have to be warned about this. Following that up in verse 6, Paul commands Timothy to refuse the old wives' fables. It's funny that we still use that phrase, old wives' tale. It's an old wives' tale. There are some of those. And I'm not saying, you know, if I'm in a place where they don't have um, antibiotics and they don't have... Um, pain medicine or something, and there's something. I mean, if if you're in pain and you're in, have, in trouble, use it. All right, but uh, I see this with Christians. All right, we're not going to go uh, a mother. She's pregnant. I'm not going to go to a doctor. Right? I'm going to have a midwife. No, if you want to do the midwife because you want to save money and you feel pretty confident in that. That's one thing, but when you make it a spiritual thing, like you are a better mother than other mothers because you do it the natural way. That's what I'm talking about. It lends itself to pride and arrogance, not spirituality. So, and, and it's, listen, if you don't take Excedrin, I take Excedrin. I call it my candy. I go in the office and I get my candy when I have a headache. A couple times a day sometimes, um, not all the time, but, and there are, I know, ladies that get upset about that. Like, you should do, you shouldn't need all this headache medicine. Well, yeah, I, and I wouldn't if I didn't have so many headaches all around me, but, um, <clears throat> you know, you don't want to take Tylenol, that's, that's fine. I, I really, it's, you're not more spiritual because you take it, and you're not more spiritual because you don't. But don't think that you are being godly because you don't make use of advances that we have. All right? If, if, if rejecting technological advance made you more spiritual, there are a bunch of Amish communities out in Pennsylvania and other places that you can go and join. But I think when you get in there, you'll discover that they're just as worldly and ungodly as anyone else. They just do it in plain clothes, riding on, riding in horse and buggy. Men are men wherever you go. And that's not what will make you godly. And that's, Paul, that's the point Paul is making. I don't think we need any careful ex exegesis to understand 
When Paul says old wives fables, what Paul is getting at, there are a lot of myths about food. And Paul says, reject them. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. There's some debate about the meaning of bodily exercise in verse 8. Is Paul talking about push-ups and chin-ups and running? Or is he talking about self-discipline and external efforts to live godly in Christ Jesus? The word Paul uses here, the word that's rendered exercise in this verse, is the Greek word gymnasia. I'm sorry, gymnasia. Our word gymnasium comes from it. Or gymnastics. So Vincent said the words are to be taken in their literal sense as referring to physical training in the palestria, boxing, racing, etc. Kenneth Waste said the words bodily exercise are found in a parallel passage from Seneca. Expositors remarks that this renders it almost certain that the primary reference is to gymnastic exercise. So the gymnasium, the place you go to work out. I don't think these men are wrong. I just don't. I think it goes beyond the gymnasium. I think it goes beyond the push-ups and the conditioning. Certainly there were those in Timothy's day, as there are those in our day, who make physical exercise a matter of doctrinal importance. There are churches, you know, you've got, today especially, where we have chucked all tradition and all, like it's become our tradition to be anti-tradition. Uh, and so you have churches that, like, I looked it up just because I thought it was funny uh, that, you know, the tattered blue jean guys that uh, almost, it's so predictable. Their platform is going to have, you know, the, the electric guitar stand and the trap set and the little fern over here, and the pastor's going to pace around the fern uh, and preach from his iPad in his tattered blue jeans, okay? And so I was, and, and always the argument is that, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about style and what style you need to be. And so I was, I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, so would it be okay if you want to reach the Goths, if you have like a Goth service? And uh, if you want to reach the Cowboys, if you have like a rodeo. And so I looked it up and somebody actually had a rodeo church. They ride bulls and preach in between. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, this is. And then I saw that there was a bodybuilder church and they lift weights like between Sunday school and church. They, and they have spiritual application time from it and so on. And there's really no limit. I suppose there could be like a stockbroker church as well. And you could like have tickers and, and things like that in between the services and buy and sell trade stocks while you're in there and all of that. You know, we, we become a caricature of ourselves in these things. So, <clears throat> so no doubt it's possible for us to I mean we can we can make an idol of anything. I think it was John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol factory. Uh, we we produce the idols. You could be marooned on a on an island somewhere for several years and 
uh, eat the grubs and beetles that are there and catch fish and survive somehow. And you would think that you would become very God-centered in that time. But the fact is that people are just as likely, apart from intervention from God, just as likely to become idolatrous in those times. <clears throat> but I think that Paul is addressing more than just weightlifting and running and conditioning and bodybuilding. I think he's talking about our efforts at self-discipline and externals in order to achieve a higher level of godliness. I think that he's addressing the common human tendency to try to look good instead of be right towards God. To appear spiritual rather than be spiritual. We do a lot of things that we think make us look godly. Some never hit the snooze button. Some refuse to have a television or a smartphone or internet or Facebook. Some serve in all kinds of ministries. And Paul means to say that self-discipline and external efforts toward godliness, though good things, he's not, he's not saying that we shouldn't do that. But he's saying that they only serve a temporal benefit. Believers must discipline their bodies. But it's far more important that you discipline yourself in spiritual things. Just as an athlete goes to the gym to train, so the believer ought to train himself, discipline himself in the things of God. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Self-discipline, physical fitness, careful diet, and in general, healthy living certainly benefits your body in this life. And if it benefits your body, it benefits you. Because we are body, soul, and spirit. We can't separate those three. I mean, our death will be the separation of those three. So when they separate, they, you die. And until then, it's all tied together. So Paul acknowledges that it profits for a little. Wake up early. That's fine. I Personally, I would love it if I could sleep past a certain time. But I lost that ability somewhere after, you know, my third or fourth kid. I don't remember which. Spending a certain number of hours every day in the word, serving in ministries, having standards. All these things are good. They are of value to you. I am not preaching against these things. But godliness, the Bible says, is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And that's the difference. Bodily exercise profits now, not for all things in eternity. Godliness is profitable not only in the life that now is, 
but in that which is to come. It's impossible to have a deep love and commitment to Christ without being stirred to activity. What's happening in here will always come out in what you do. The two feet off of each other. Heart commitment stirs bodily exercise. And in turn, bodily exercise can stir us uh, and renew our heart commitments as well. But this is, we need to understand, this is true in the good as well as in the bad. Behavior and action reinforce heart commitment and devotion. If a man stops by the tavern on the way home from work every night, that daily habit reinforces a heart commitment that he has. Uh, Smokers will tell you, smokers are as addicted to the habit of getting out the cigarette and lighting it and bringing it in and out of their mouth as they are to the nicotine itself. That's why a daily habit of Bible reading and prayer is vital to our Christian growth. But it is also possible for you to read your Bible and pray every day and do nothing more than reinforce a habit that you think is making you a better Christian or a better person. Paul said, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. What important question that comes to mind. Which one serves as the basis of the other? Does bodily exercise serve as the basis of heart commitment? Or does heart commitment serve as the basis for bodily exercise? <clears throat> if bodily exercise is the source of heart commitment, then doing certain things every day should deepen our love for God automatically. So you tell me, you read your Bible and pray every day. Do you also have to make yourself pay attention to what you're reading? Do you also have to make sure that you're engaging with the Lord in prayer? Do you find that often it is a bodily exercise, but there is not any fellowship taking place between you and the Lord? Do you have to be careful about that? Do you have to... Fight for that daily connection with Christ. My experience tells me that you probably have to fight for it. Because I do. I can very easily sit down and read my Bible and spend time in prayer. And never have fellowship with God. It's a bodily exercise to little or no profit. Paul says, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And what I've found is that good habits are easily lost and difficult to maintain. And certain practices, bodily exercises, serve only to build a commitment to that exercise. So in other words... The habit, the, con- the commitment to Bible reading and prayer can very easily reinforce that commitment, but not the purpose of that commitment, which is to walk with the Lord. So that I am reading my Bible and praying every day religiously, 
but not really walking with the Lord. Uh, The Pharisees would be an example of what I'm talking about here. They were very committed to washing their hands. They were committed gnat strainers. Their bodily exercise did not foster a deeper heart commitment to the Lord. We know that because when they were face to face with the Lord, they hated him and wanted to crucify him. Jesus himself told his disciples everything they bid you to do, do it. But don't be what they are because they say and do not, he said. The same can be said for Roman Catholics and even Mormons who have many external practices that serve only to build a deeper commitment to their traditions, but not to the Lord. The first commandment, I could remind you, the first commandment is not to do anything. The first commandment is to love. Love the Lord your God. Now, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So the two go together. You can't say, well, I just love the Lord. I don't do what he says. I just love him. You don't love him if you don't do, right? But the first commandment is to love and let your doing flow out of that love. In my experience, when love is not the basis of what we do, then doing eventually becomes hateful to us. We do it because we think we have to, but we hate doing it. Now, Paul, in these two verses, does not argue against doing. Bodily exercise refers to external efforts to do right. Paul does not disparage these bodily exercises or even argue against them, as it may seem I'm doing. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying not to do it. He only points out that these things profit but a little. Instead, Paul argues for Christians to focus first on godliness, becoming more godly, more like Christ. Make being your first priority. And then make sure that you're doing Exercise yourself, notice what he says, the the word that's in that passage. Exercise thyself, you see the word? Rather unto godliness. Because bodily bodily exercise profits, here's literally what Paul is saying, profits to a little. Your external efforts to discipline your body, to do the things that a Christian ought to do, they have some profit in this life, but the profit is small. I hate to rain on your parade here, right? But the truth is that at the end of your life, we, none of us will have much to show for what we did in this life. Even those who did a lot will have little to show for it. In the grand scheme of things, it will amount to very little. That's what Solomon was getting at in Ecclesiastes. 
We talked about it being vanity and vexation of spirit. Very little of it will last beyond you. When I first became the pastor of Berean, a pastor friend told me, he just sat down with me and he said, look, one day I'm going to die and you're going to die. He said, and this is a hard reality. Three years after you're dead, no one will remember you. That's pretty tough. It, <laughs> but it's true. I'm not here to be remembered. I'm here to serve the Lord in my time, in my generation. Every one of us preachers over the 2,000 years since Christ, every one of us have been like a brick in the big bridge that preserves the truth of God's word from one generation to the next, to the next after it. If you want proof what I'm talking about, you tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-grandmother. See if you can name any of them. I'm sure somebody here knows their names, but most of us don't. We'd have to look in a record book somewhere. It doesn't take long to be forgotten, even by your own family. It's important then that we get rid of the conceits that we carry around with us about the things that we're doing. I say it, you know, sometimes in our school, and some parent will get sideways because their kid got, you know, a C or a D in there on a math paper. And, it, you know, and, and I want your kids to do their best. Don't misunderstand me. But we can get really bent out of shape about it. Nobody knows what grade you got in second grade on your math. I'll go a step further. Nobody cares. You can tell me what grade. Maybe you know what grade you got. And by the way, young people, this is not an excuse for you to give slough off on your work. But I'm saying keep it in perspective. Keep it in perspective. <clears throat> this is the point. Godliness is profitable unto all things. Practice your piano. Yes, absolutely. Prepare your lessons. Plan your programs but make sure that your walk with the Lord is your first priority. Make sure that you're checking your heart attitudes, your spirit, your delight in Christ. Make sure that is the most important thing because that is what you'll carry into eternity. <clears throat> Godliness is profitable to all things. Everything you would do in this life and everything that you'll enjoy in the life that is to come. This is maybe another way of saying to make sure you put the salt in the batter and don't wait till you've baked the cake and then sprinkle the salt on top of the cake. You know, it's interesting, but it matters when you put the salt in, right? And if, you, if you're baking the cake and you say, oh, I forgot to put the salt in, so I'm just, I'm putting a salt shaker in front of you. You can, 
shake it on yourself. Nobody wants to do that. And nobody's going to think that that will improve the taste of the cake. And that's what the Bible is saying. Make sure that the godliness is mixed in the batter and not added as an afterthought. Godliness advances your work and makes it profitable. And godliness lasts beyond this life. It counts in heaven, where our list of accomplishments won't recommend us. Listen, folks, I, I mean, again, you might have pictured that big, you know, projector screen where they play the movie, This Was Your Life. And they go through and give like the rolling credits there, the list of all the things you achieved in your life. That's not how it's going to happen. I, You know, it's a brutal day. It's the first day of the year and I'm popping bubbles all over the place. Okay, but in heaven, they're not going to list your achievements and your accomplishments. They're not going to have a parade for you. All right. We're going to be we're going to be celebrating our Lord and Savior who brought us safely home. And what will matter in heaven, what will count in heaven is the delight that you have in Christ and the attitude you have towards Christ, your contentment in Jesus Christ, your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. In that great day, when we stand before God, what will matter to us will be this. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Godliness refers to our piety, our devotion, our heart commitment to the Lord. It consists in God's pursuit of me and my pursuit of God. So let's consider those two things quickly. God's pursuit of me, which can be described as an experience of the transforming power of God's grace. God's grace at work in me to transform me. Now, this is what we should long for, to be changed. Grace works on us to change us into the image of God. Grace is God's infinite love and power given effectively to people who clearly do not deserve it. And God's grace transforms us. It's given in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells me. So grace is not an impersonal force. It is a person. Very personal. The Holy Spirit works in me to make me into what I ought to be. And I should be cooperating with that by yielding to the Holy Spirit, by uh, avoiding anything that might grieve him or quench him. Grace makes me godly in spite of myself. It works two ways. First, when I resist God and even rebel against him, God, in a gracious way, imposes his will on me, overrules my foolish rebellion, defeats me in my purposes. And this is something that I see God doing and have seen him do many times over. God being gracious to me in spite of myself and often even against my own inclinations. In defeat, God transforms. 
Secondly, when I finally yield, then the work of grace is imprinted on me. Think of Jacob wrestling the angel. He wrestled until the angel broke him. And so the grace of God often leaves a scar, leaves a mark to show that God won. Grace produces a Christ-like spirit in me. I am being transformed into the image of Christ. This is accomplished by walking with him in submission. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is what it means to be godly. And this is what we should crave. God is determined to restore his image in you. And he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Every trial, every triumph in your life is ordained by God to that purpose of producing in you the image of Christ. This is the work of God's Holy Spirit. One person indwelling another person, going to war with that purpose until only one has control. And that one is not you. The work of the Holy Spirit then is a withering work, as Isaiah 40 and verse 7 says it. Then it is a controlling work. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it is a fruit-bearing work, as Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the Spirit. That's God's pursuit of me. And then my pursuit of God, which calls for a deep heart commitment to the Lord. A commitment and a recommitment to say, Lord, I want you to win in my life. I want you to control me. I want you to have me. Not a commitment to God as a means of success. As a means of impressing people. As a means of achieving some great thing. God is not a genie in a bottle there to grant your wishes. He is God. And if you would pursue him, you must pursue him as God. Not something to be conquered and subdued and obtained. But something to be conquered by and obtained by. That means your pursuit will wear out your knees before it wears out your shoes or your gloves. God's power is not a force to be harnessed by us. We yield to God, not grasp God. But in our devotions, our devotions really consist of a yielding and surrendering to him over and over, day after day after day. And by the way, not, not a trying to achieve a perfect surrender for all time. For one thing, don't ever think that yesterday's surrender can last forever. Your surrender is kind of like that manna in the wilderness. It's good for today. Tomorrow it'll be spoiled and rotten. And I've seen plenty of people who thought that they surrendered to the Lord back when they were in college. And it's a done deal. And it was evidently not. But surrender day by day to him. Love him. Delight in him. Rejoice in him. Commit to him and recommit every single day. Every day. You wake up. 
not relying on what happened yesterday, knowing that what happened yesterday is kind of like climbing a sand dune. You know, you made some progress, but not as much as the steps you took, right? Uh, and you just, you wake up today and you commit it to the Lord and you yield to him for the day. And then, you know, three hours later when you forgot what you prayed earlier and then things go really bad and you're frustrated and irritated, you surrender it to him again. Over and over and over again. Pursuit of God will require countless commitments and recommitments. And so we listen, we learn, we grow, we feed on Christ. But whatever you do, don't take the shortcut. There is not a shortcut to godliness. But the shortcut would be appearance. Trying to look godly. Trying to impress people with your piety. Don't do that. Number one, it makes you insufferable. You think that people don't like you because, you know, you're so godly. But the truth is, I'll just be candid with you. I want to be frank here. What they don't like is that you're an insufferable bore. Don't do that. All right. Too many Christians find that genuine godliness costs too much and pays too little. People don't notice it as much as the fake kind. It doesn't get you as much credibility. All right. And so rather than walk with God faithfully, pushing through the hard times, they take the shortcut. They pretend. Too many Christians want to be seen as godly instead of being content simply with being godly. Walking with the Lord, trusting in him, satisfied with him. He is, as we said this morning, more than enough. This kind of Christianity is cheap, easy, vain, and very temporal. And usually as exposed in a hard trial. Labor not for the meat that perisheth. Godliness is profitable. Godliness. 